I love Jesus' stories. And we're talking, we talked last week and this week about the God that respects women. And this may be to you such a yawner, such a, well, of course he does. You need to remember that this is not most of the world. We talked some about that last week. Let me just bring up another example. The founder's statement, I mean, I have spoken to people in Breton that looked at me and said, yeah, after they've gotten to know me a bit, and they'll lean over and they'll say, in America, that whole all men are created equal thing, you don't really believe that, do you? Class is still built in. There was a story recently, and I won't go all the back details because it would bore you to tears, but basically, an immigrant family came in two generations ago into England, very, very wealthy, own quite a few stores there, major stores, give to charity, have been incredible citizens now for three generations. Yet when one of their sons married one of the, um, the standard ruling class, in the papers it would say, he's not a gentleman, which meant he's not one of us. Right there in public. If you go into... India, in the Hindu society, all people are assigned a caste, a place in society at their birth, and by their birth, there's nothing you can do to change your caste. Nothing. They're the top of the, uh, the top three castes are those that are called twice born. They're religiously clean. They're allowed to read the holy language of Sanskrit. They're allowed to read the holy books. The fourth caste is a laborer caste. They're never allowed to move out of that caste. And below them are the untouchables. Any contact with them, even allowing their shadow to touch you, makes you unclean. Merely because of where they were born, for who, to whom they were born. Most of the food and medicine sent to them by very well-meaning Americans and Western Europeans doesn't make it to them. It is intercepted by the upper caste because they don't deserve it. They're the untouchables. They're the lower ones. You need to understand something. This is not an anti-British creed, uh, creed today. It's not yelling against the Hindus. This is the world we live in. This little pocket where we say you can grow up to be anything and anybody you want to, that's very, very rare in this planet. And especially when it comes to letting women move out of whatever situation or box we have placed them in. Even in America, you can be, I've heard the expressions white trash, I've heard the expressions born on the wrong side of the tracks or from the wrong side of the tracks. There's still class divisions even here. But Jesus, when he came, said something very remarkable. One of my favorite passages is out of Luke chapter 4, verses 14 through 21, to set the stage when you go to synagogue, everybody gets a turn to read scripture. Not every week. You have a week where it's your turn to be the reader of the scripture. Jesus' turn comes. They hand him the scroll. Look what happens. He returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. And everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood to read. In that society, you stand to read, you sit down to teach. The scroll was of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, 
The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. I'm 60 years old. I've read that thousands of times. I just still got chills again. Religion has often come and dropped a big set of more burdens on people. Religion has often come and divided people. Religion has often come and demanded. Jesus said, I came to set you free. I came to break the boxes. Someone recently said, Patrick, have you all your life been out of the... You know, worked out of the box. And I said, I don't have a box. I've never seen a box. I've been told of boxes. If everyone gives me a box, I shall shred it, burn it, and dance on the ashes of the box. And that is because of Luke chapter 4. Break it. Don't do this anymore. Jesus stood up and said, everything changes. I want to show you something here. Now, we have thousands that listen to us online every week. And they're not going to be able to see this because we don't do video at this stage. We're looking at opportunities to do that. But um, here we go. This is your Bible. That's all of the Gospels. That's not much, is it? And yet 2,000 years plus later, these stories motivate us, change us, drive us, shape us, and define us. Don't get tired of these stories. If ever you hear a Jesus story get started and you're thinking, oh, that story again, you need to pull back and meditate on that story. What is it you're not hearing? Because you ought to be pretty interested in these stories. I can remember, uh, as Stacy was talking about memories of past communions, when I was dating Cammie, I loved prayer time. Now, I've never normally loved prayer time because my attention span is that of a ferret on espresso. <laughs> we can discuss later if, if, if I care to. The, but I loved prayer time because prayer time was when I could hold her hand. You were legally allowed in that church to have bodily contact of a limited nature during prayer. And every so often, they'd announce you was saying a prayer. And I'd be going, yes, because it was a guy that would just go on and on and on. <laughs> We've been married more than 37 years now. And when the prayer time comes, I can't wait to reach over and take that hand. I'm not tired of that hand. It's the same hand, but I'm not tired of it because it means something to me. These stories need to mean something to you to where you're never tired of them. You go back to them again. Like John 4, the woman at the well. I love that story because of all the stuff that, that the readers of it knew that we don't know. And so we read it and it, it, we go, oh, that's an interesting story. We don't really get it. So, once again, we got to take a look at this story. Jesus, the scripture said, had to go into Samaria. If you were reading it in the first couple hundred years of the, the church, you would have been thinking, no, he didn't. Because Jews didn't go into Samaria for anything, ever. 
And if ever you needed to go from here to there, Samaria was in between. You would actually go down a, a, more than 1,000 feet in elevation, go way around several miles out of your way, and then back up several hundred feet in elevation to get where you needed to go. But Jesus had to go to Samaria. Why would you have to go to Samaria? Samaria was not a place Jews were welcome because there was a caste system there. A caste that the Jews were below, Samaritans were above. Outside, the Jews felt they were above, the Samaritans were below. They both looked at each other and looked down at each other. Isn't it fascinating in Proverbs chapter 6 where there's a list of things that God hates? And number one, I've got a lot of things I thought could have been number one. Terrorism, beheading, you know, that sort of thing. Number one, haughty eyes. Why? Because you cannot damage, slander, or hurt anybody until you first consider yourself more important than them. And you lower them, and you make them the other. Jews have been doing this to Samaritans, and vice versa, since 722 BC. 700 years of this, plus, have been going on, and Jesus is going to end it. He's had enough of it. So he walks in, sits down, turns to his apostles, asks them what they have to eat. They didn't bring anything. They thought they were going to go all the way through, and you're not allowed to eat stuff in Samaria if you're a holy Jew. So now they got to go back out and get food, and you know they're thinking he could have brought it up sooner, that we were going to stop for a picnic. This is totally, uh, you know, we don't know what he, you know, they were not, probably not going to criticize him, him being God and all, but still, they, they go on out. Jesus sits and waits by a well. There was a ruined village nearby called Sychar. It had been ruined for 100 years, 107 BC to be um, exact about it. Only outcasts and refugees lived there. Only people, only Samaritans that were so bad the other Samaritans wouldn't have anything to do with them lived out there. They were the homeless Samaritans. And here comes a woman at the sixth hour of the day now, that tells you something. You don't go get water at the sixth hour of the day. That's high noon. That's hot. And you don't go alone. But she's alone at the sixth hour, which indicates nobody, even among the outcasts, would hang around this woman. This is the worst woman in the world. So she comes to Jacob's well that was dug there a long time by the base of Mount Gerizim. And there she finds a Jew, a rabbi. That would not make her date. Jesus looks at her and said, would you give me something to drink? Now that right there would cause some people to stomp out of synagogue had they been told the story. Because to eat or drink with somebody in that day and time was to fellowship them and be one with them and say, I embrace this person. You are who you eat with. And for him to sit and say, I will take something from your hand and drink it was earth-shattering, but she didn't go, oh, thank you, what a nice man you are. She was harsh and flippant in response to him, but he didn't take the bait because he wasn't interested. I've told you this before. He wasn't interested in winning the argument. He was interested in winning her. We don't need to argue. We really don't. We don't need to tell everybody what we think. We don't need to divide along lines because this world will divide you like crazy if you give it half a shot. You don't need to. You don't need to play the game. Instead, he just kept talking to her. And then she becomes the first person that Jesus tells 
who he is. The, first, the worst person on the planet. Whenever she says, I know that when Messiah comes, he'll take care of all of this. He leans forward and I know he's smiling saying, that's me. God has come to this village to find the worst person within walking distance on the planet to show them, I will fellowship you. And isn't it a shame that so many of us draw lines of fellowship over politics, class, or religious differences when Jesus went out of his way to break the brocks and go into Samaria? And who for? A woman. When the apostles come back, they're confused, and he makes them stay for a couple of days, which is actually brilliant, because now they got to eat in Samaria. You know, you know, good luck, because you're not allowed to drink either if you're not allowed to eat. And so after a couple of days, you're going to drink. All to show them, as Jesus said, the field is white unto harvest. If you're not afraid to touch the untouchable, if you're not afraid to get out of your boxes, but we are afraid. We love our boxes. Our boxes make us feel secure. Jesus won't let you stay there. We've talked about John 8. In fact, the first sermon I preached when I came here three years and three weeks ago, not that I'm counting, just that every week I'm still here, somebody loses a bet. So, you know, I'm, I'm kinda, <laughs> kind of excited. In John 8, we talked about the woman caught in adultery when we defined ourselves here as a church of open arms and empty hands. Open arms in that we will embrace you, empty hands in that we do not have a rock we're going to throw at you. Even if you throw one at us, we're not going to throw one back. Just, that's not who we are. And empty hands, because if we have something, we will share it with you. you don't, we're, we're not going to go to heaven rich and you poor. We're going to take care of each other, anybody who comes, the best we can. Jesus set aside the law to offer this woman protection and peace. He set aside the law to offer her protection and peace. Because whenever they ask, what is the law of Moses? The law of Moses was to stone her to death. But Jesus threw a qualifier on it, a famous one. Those of you without sin, let him among you rather, without sin, throw the first stone. And he'd been you know, sitting there writing. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what he was writing. Early Jewish tradition tells us he was writing the sins of the men that were standing there. Like, you know, go ahead, guys. Throw a stone. Eventually, he looks up and they're all gone. And she's standing there, humiliated, isolated, alone, life ruined. And he said, who's here to condemn you? And she said, nobody. And he said, it's so important you get the order of this. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. He didn't say, go and sin no more and I won't condemn you. He already was not condemning her. He knew her situation. We don't know it. But he was not condemning her. He just said, don't do that anymore. Now, he didn't even say, don't do that anymore or I'll start condemning you. Isn't it sad how we have turned Jesus into a harsh God? Read those few pages I held up. Let them soak in. This is the God we follow. In our world, we set men against women and women against men. And we have marches against each other and we write books about how the, you know, the men are doing this to us or the women are doing that to us and 
God doesn't do that. When we elevate women in a church, we're not elevating them above men. We're elevating both of them because they are God's children. I treat Cammie with respect and love and grace, not only because she deserves it, which she does, but also because she is God's daughter. And that matters. Whenever I see Keith Holloway come in, I see a friend of mine, but I also, the reason we welcome you when you come in so heartily is not just because you are here and we're looking for numbers, it's because Keith is God's son. I have a son. I know what that means. I have a daughter. I know what that means. And I look around and I see Graham. That's God's son. That matters to me. You know, I look around and I see the women in this room who are amazing women. They're God's daughters. Go ask. You know, I have a daughter and a son. Go ahead. Ask me which one I like best. You already know the answer, don't you? They're both my favorites. That's the way it is, people. We serve the only God in human history that did not elevate one above the other. Go look for it. Check it out. The only God in human history that brought them back, rather both up. And to do so, he had to do it in the middle of a fiercely male-centric, male-powered universe. So in Mark, I love the Mark chapter, Mark chapter 5. Here comes a woman who's had uterine bleeding for a dozen years. She's not allowed to be there. She's not allowed to be in town. She's not allowed to touch anybody. She's not allowed to be in her, around her family. She's not around, allowed to be near the shops. She is unfit to be in contact with proper people. She is unclean. What's Jesus doing? He's on his way to heal the daughter of one of the highest caste people, to, to borrow a phrase, the highest caste people of his day. A ruler, a ruler of a synagogue. But he stops. And on the way, not only does he heal her, you know that story, we're going to move past that for the now. But he calls her something he calls no other person in Scripture. He says, daughter, you go in peace. But what did he do there? He elevated her to the, his daughter. And by go in peace is an expression in the Semitic languages which literally means, peace be upon you. I'm responsible for you. Nobody touches her without coming through me. He gave her protection and status when she was unclean and unfit to be around others. Oh, there were people that murmured. Every so often, check it out in Scripture. It's amazing people don't notice this. From time to time, it'll say, and people from that day, many people did not walk with him anymore. And many people left. Many people, because... This was radical. Not everybody liked what Jesus did. He did whatever it took to get people free of their burdens, to clean them and show them dignity, grace, and love. And then very important, church, he turned to us and said, follow me. You do this. You do what I'm doing. A powerful story that I do, I, I'm not going to make a problem when I get to heaven you know, I have people that say, oh, I have these questions I want to ask God. Not me. No, I, I don't want to annoy anybody when I get up there in case it was a clerical error, you know. They come and go back and check. <clears throat> you still want to do that. Uh, however, there is a story in heaven. I want Jesus to tell me the rest of the story because it's way too brief. It could be a movie. 
It's in Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through, through 17. I've not asked for it to go up. Once you think about this, before I read this, understand the man-made laws of this area where this takes place. A woman owns no property. She has no rights. In most cases, there are exceptions. She marries. That's the only time she can leave her father's house. If a man comes and looks after her and cares for her, if the man dies, she has to return to her father's house because she has nothing, no way to support herself unless she has a male child. If that male child is old enough to protect her and provide for her and inherit, then she can stay in the house. Now Jesus is walking into a village, a town called Nain, and there's a funeral coming out. A widow, no husband, has now lost her only son. We look at that and we go, how terribly sad. She's lost her husband and lost her son. Oh, it's sadder than that. She's also lost her house, lost everything she owns. She has to return to her father's house. But what if dad's dead? That happens a lot in the days before antibiotics and nice surgeries. Well, then she is homeless. And like many of the women dead, you either had to become a beggar or a prostitute. That was the world. Jesus goes to a town called Nain. His disciples and a large crowd went with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Now, when this story was told, it would have been told like that in segments, and she was a widow, and the group would have gone, oh, because they knew what that meant. A large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, don't cry. Then he went up and touched the beard, that's the, the, the um, carrying unit for the casket. They were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. Why? You don't touch that. That's unclean. That's against, that's, that's against religious rules, that is. Leviticus is very plain. You don't touch that. It's also very plain about other things that Je- not to touch that Jesus did, like lepers. But he stops the casket. He goes, no. And he speaks to the corpse. Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. Jesus gave him back to his mother. <clears throat> Excuse me. They were all filled with awe, I, yeah, and praised God. I would even put in there, those that did not run away when the guy sat up, praised God, because I, I would have been a mile and a half by then. A great prophet has appeared among us. They said, God has come to help his people. And the news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Now, why do I say it's too short? Because there's a whole lot of the backstory I'd like to learn, wouldn't you? How old was the young boy? What did he die of? What was her situation? What was she facing? I want to know all of this, but the real kicker in all of this is... When the Lord saw her. Friends, if when we look at people, all we see is a white guy or a black woman, or all we see is a liberal or a conservative, or all we see is a foreigner or whatever you are, we're not seeing people. 
We need to see the people. They're not a problem, they're a person. We need to, we need to see the person. And that's, that's brutal, because we don't do that. We look upon people as problems. I, I, I don't like it when marchers break windows and, and, and interrupt the traffic flow and all the other. I don't like that. But again, when I look at them, if I look at them all as a problem, I've got a problem. I need to look at them as a person and say, what do they need? I know what they want, but what do they need? We all need Jesus. This woman was alone, and Jesus was not okay with that. Jesus' respect for women flows throughout Scripture, and it's clear that he did not allow the current situation and rules to stop him from showing them love and care. Besides, the society that men created was to blame for much of their pain and problem wasn't what God intended. And that's why when Jesus started his first sermon, he did a radical thing. In the first sermon, in the first chapter of that sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said several times, you have heard it said, and he quotes their scripture to them, and he says, but I say to you, and he changes it. He said, a new time has come. Something new has come here. Now, sadly, too many people still crave the old boxes of law when Jesus says, no, we're doing something else now. We're changing something. Those who, those who followed him learned very quickly that this new kingdom did not have the barriers of the old world Gentiles and Jews were now brothers, and that was so radical. I mean, I can't even describe how radical that would be. But I can try. I've never shared this story. One, my father, going through his life, has adopted so many. And some of them, it did not go well. Some of them, it went really bad. You know, one boy that he adopted spent most of his life in prison to this date. Um, and, and should have been there for the things that he did. Others went great. Others didn't go great. It happens. But all the time, taking in people. He took in one young lady who joined the military and then deserted. She just deserted. Now, at the same time, I've got a son in the Marines. Well, she reappeared I don't know how she did it, but she was able to work with the military to just kick her out and not put her in prison. But my son and I went down to see my father the same time she was going to come and see him for the first time in a while. I didn't know what I felt, frankly. I felt like she had betrayed my father and mother's hospitality and love. I felt that she had betrayed my support for her and my care for her. I felt that she had betrayed her country and her oaths. <clears throat> I didn't know what to do. And then whenever the door opened and she walked in, the first person to stand up was my son. And he walked over and wrapped her in his arms and just held her. And I felt ashamed. I had let somebody else love more than me. He had more reason, because he was on the line. He had more reason to be angry at somebody who had left the line, but he did not. He never said a harsh word. He asked her how she was doing, walked her over to the couch and sat her down and never brought up what she had done. And I marveled. I, I went home and told Cammie later, I said, how did we get him? 
We say that about our daughter as well. How did we get these kids? We both came from squirrely homes that put the fun and dysfunctional. And <clears throat> how did this happen? But I think what, the way we got him was Jesus because we grew up telling the Jesus stories and our kids believed him. Are you willing to not see a deserter, but see a person and hug them and sit down with them? Galatians chapter 3, verses 26 through 28. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Amen, church? When Paul does the honor roll of those who helped him in Romans chapter 16, look at it sometimes. He calls Phoebe a deacon, Junia an elder. And if you take a look, he mentions more men than women, no question. But if you take a look who he gives his highest praise to, it's almost equal, men and women. They were, he said, his co-workers. All of this was very controversial. I don't, think, I don't think anybody would have blamed Jesus had he turned away from women and only worked with the men because he would have reached more people and that would have been not as divisive and people wouldn't have been as upset with Jesus. But Jesus wasn't one to avoid risk. God made man along with woman, woman along with man, and he would not turn away from either. So, a couple scriptures to end. Well, I'll step down so that Mark can bring his crew back up. And I love the way that Mark just flows with the situation. That's, that's a sign of a pro. Take a look at Philippians chapter 3. Not that I have obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining forward toward, is, uh, toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. <laughs> That's a very weighty sentence. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Wow. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a, as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there. The Lord Jesus Christ who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. So how should we look at each other from this time on? If you'll stand with me, we will look at 2 Corinthians 5 as we close. <coughs> 
So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Can we all agree that that's very difficult? But that's our job. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do know so longer. If, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All of this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, that's our only job. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Let us truly be a church formed in the image of Christ, a church of reconciling ministers, not counting people's sins against them, but bringing them home in the family of Christ. Amen, church.